So we need to shift to greater value out of people. How do you do it? It's not by grinding them into dust. It's not by overworking them. So it's a shift in leadership from, and the one of the ways I talk about it now is, you know, we used to talk about I'm the manager, so everybody reports to me. That makes all the people who report to me competitors. So people compete with each other. Now, if you move to another mindset where you work for the people, your goal is to enable their success. They start seeing their peers as collaborators who make them stronger. It's a big shift for leadership from process where people were just part of it to focusing on the people and unleashing the potential within them. Hello, and welcome to Health Views with Deb Friesen, MD, a podcast about health and wellness within today's healthcare landscape. I'm your host, Dr. Deb Friesen with Kaiser Permanente, and I've been working in healthcare for over 20 years. During that time, I've learned that the most powerful tool for healing is the power of listening and the value of asking the right questions. Come join me as we'll together explore timely topics that impact people, businesses, and communities. Now let's check out today's view. Before I introduce this episode, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank all of you, the Health Views with Deb Friesen MD listeners. We have over 7,000 episode listens since we launched in early 2021, and I can't thank you all enough for your support and interest. Please continue to download our monthly episodes and also tell your family, friends, and coworkers about the series. And now I'm excited to introduce our October episode featuring Heather McGowan, who's a real treat. Little Halloween humor for you there. Heather is a future of work strategist, thought leader, researcher, author, and is one of the leading voices on the fourth industrial revolution. Listen to this episode to hear Heather's perspectives on the impact COVID has had on the future of work and why she's so optimistic about what's coming next. So Heather, let's start a little bit at the beginning, specifically around the future of work. How does one become this leader role How did it develop? How did you find yourself in this space? Or did you just know that you needed to create it? So I used to joke with people and said, I saw an ad on a bulletin board for future work strategists and I had the qualifications. Now, so when I look back, because, you know, I agree with Steve Jobs, the dots never make sense looking forward, always looking backwards. When I was younger, I started working when I was like 12 years old. My parents went and got me working papers because not because we needed it. Unfortunately, I didn't as it, you know, I came from a comfortable background, but I was really interested in why people work and what they do. And I would take jobs for three months, quit them and go to another job because I was like, okay, I learned what they do there. Now, what do they do over here? And so I was like, scoop ice cream, lifeguard, every worked in a nursing home, worked in a factory. I did every kind of job I could. Then I went to university and I went to art school. Brown School of Design, and I did product design, which was how do you jump into the white space and understand things people don't even know they need or want by understanding people, understanding unmet needs. And then I would ask a lot of business questions when I worked in my first few jobs in industrial design. And they all said, well, you can't ask those questions because you don't have a degree in business. So I was like, roger that. Correct. Got it. Went to business school, studied entrepreneurship. How do you create and scale these things? So How do you find needs? How do you scale needs? Those two things came together. Worked in boutique investment banking, then found my way accidentally into academia where I built a a new college focused on innovation within a university. Had no background in doing that. So I've just created opportunities along the way. And one of the things I discovered in, I don't know, it was like early 2010s was the people out there speaking about how work was going to change was primarily men, almost all white men, And they were all technology determinists who were saying that 
automation was coming. And one of them even said, the industrial revolution gave us the middle class, this next industrial revolution is gonna give us the useless class. And I found that so profoundly offensive. I was like, no. So I wrote an article on LinkedIn in 2014, and I said, jobs are over, the future is income generation. We have to think about ourselves as products in beta, as one of my mentors says, but also as business models. And 100,000 people read that article in 24 hours, and I started getting speaking requests from all over the world. I remember seeing that that went viral for you. I mean, before that was even a viral term. That was pretty amazing, the response. Yeah, and then I got invited to speak in Australia by Annalie Killian, and they had uh, 40 international speakers. She had traveled the world to find the best speakers, and I was this outlier. No one had ever heard of me in my first talk. And they rated me like number two or three of that group, and those videos went viral. And from there, my speaking career launched. So that's how I found my way into doing this. And so you're speaking to share what you've learned, but you also always learn from the audience. Was that the genesis of thinking that you needed to write a book? No, I, you know, at first I didn't know I was a speaker. I thought I was speaking so that I could get a book. I didn't understand. It was the other way around. And then I had one client who said to me, I would read your book, but I actually want you to read me your book. I understand things when you explain them, when you use visuals. So I'll read the book, but I get it so much more when you say it and you explain it to me. And that was an insight that maybe I had a career here. I've never taken a speaking class. I had no plans ever to speak for a living. It just sort of came out of, you know, the ability and the the interest in, in describing things. And so the book came because you needed a wider audience. And tell me about your partnership with um, Chris Shipley as well. And so Chris saw me speak in Australia that first time. At the time, she was working for MIT. So I flew halfway around the world to meet someone who was, you know, two miles from my house. And we started talking about uh, her background as a writer. She's an amazing writer. And her background is in tracking technology trends in Silicon Valley. She's the person who popularized the term social media. She's been at the forefront of a lot of technological innovations, changes, and breakthroughs. So we sort of got together and said, well, I see it, you know, from a frameworks perspective. I explain things. She knows how to like craft that into prose that people can follow the words of it when they're reading it. And it's just a really great partnership and a good friendship too. She's a wonderful person. Yeah. And so I would encourage listeners as well. I think that you are kind of a multi-sensory experience. And so I think there is something to be said about reading the book, watching your videos, even reading some of the other interviews and blogs. It all just, there's so much there that it all, there's different facets that come together in that. So I agree with whoever gave you that feedback. Yeah. Could you read me your book? I love that. And here's the irony is there's an audio version of the book, but I auditioned for it and I was rejected. (laughs) (laughs) It is ironic. Yeah, that is ironic, isn't it? So one of the things that really struck me as I've had the chance to listen to you, to do a little bit of research, look at some recordings, and of course, read your book is a sense of optimism. And I find that refreshing. And I guess I find it a little surprising just because of the way the world is right now. And could you tell me a little bit about where that optimism comes from? Yeah, I can. And I think I might have maybe always had it. But when I was 18 years old, my brother was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. He is adopted from Korea. He was 17 at the time. And they thought the only way to save his life was with a bone marrow transplant. This was 1992. No internet, no social media, no cell phones. And because bone marrow compatibility, you may or may not know, is usually based on ethnicity, 
the fact that he was adopted from Korea made it really difficult. I wasn't going to match him. My biological sister wasn't going to match him. I do have another sister who's also adopted from Korea, but they're not biologically related and she wasn't a match. So we immediately went into, okay, what are we going to do mode? And we fell into these roles. Like I was a university student and my father worked Korean churches, which was like the strongest network in the Korean community. So you'd go to Korean churches and say, this is my son, I'm trying to save his life. And I went through Korean student associations, university, university, college to college across the country. So I was going to RISD at the time, Rhode Island School of Design, which is affiliated with Brown, did a testing drive at RISD and Brown. Someone said, hey, I know someone at UCLA. Somebody else said, I know someone at Princeton. I know someone at MIT. And it just, person to person, just conversation to conversation, hearing the story about my brother, 7,000 people rolled up their sleeve and gave a vile blood to try to save the life of someone they never met. Oh, I have goosebumps right now. That's an amazing story. That's only half the story. The other half of the story is while this was going on, my parents had been ad- active in adoption. And my brother was adopted when he was six, which is older for international adoption. And friends of ours went around Korea to the village in which he was relinquished and found his biological brother we already knew was adopted into a family in Sweden. His biological mother was still alive. We found two uncles. Everyone was tested. Initially, his biological brother was going to be the donor. Ultimately, his biological mother became the donor. She flew to the United States, donated bone marrow, and he turned 50 last month. He had a less than 1% chance of surviving. Anyway, you look at it, the hospitals in Boston wouldn't treat him anymore. So my parents flew around the country literally with binders to research hospitals saying, will you take on this case as an experiment? Because Boston said, no, all the big hospitals said this is just outside the bounds. And so it was a combination of, you know, this sort of, no doesn't always mean no, there might be a path. And having a profound amount of trust in the good of people. People I didn't know, I hadn't met, I had nothing in common with other than, you know, the desire to try to save someone's life, all tried to help. 7,000 people tried to help someone they never met. So you can't have that experience at the age of 18 and then go on and be cynical. (laughs) Cynical. (laughs) It does kind of affect you for life. I can see that as well. So let's talk about your book a little bit, The Adaptation Advantage that you wrote with Chris Shipley. You know, it really is a primer for what followed. And I don't know if you were prescient or just you as a futurist, future of work, but surely that was so serendipitous that it really all came together. But let's start by looking maybe backwards now at that book through the lens of the pandemic. As I think about your book and and how it was laid out, part one is really kind of a foundation of what work is about and how it evolved. Part two, the worker, the skills that they needed to have, how that's evolved. And then three, how does leadership work in those contexts as well? So with that, did I get that right? Number one, would you just, okay, perfect. And so as we look backwards through the lens of the pandemic, we're now two and a half years in and and we did the whole shelter in place or worked at home if we could. We got the vaccine. We're moving back out into the world. What do we know now that we didn't know in 2020 about the future of work? I think the thing we didn't know was that we've been putting up with a lot for too long. And And I think that the existential crisis, we'll look back on pandemics and generally think of them as, you know, a plagues and plagues reorder society. And I think the conversation sort of about where work takes place is really a conversation about where work fits in our lives. And I think that's the most profound shift because the way Chris and I are talking about now we're working on our next book, which I'll get into later, is we had the Great Resignation, which everybody thinks of as a moment, was actually data to show that churn has been going up for more than a decade. That has been an increase in turnover. 
and then you had retirements and you have labor, lower labor force participation. And so following the Great Resignation, while that was going on, we had the Great Reshuffle, which was really a mass uh, exodus from leisure and hospitality, close contact, low pay jobs into higher skill jobs. So what people did during those two and a half years is retrain to go in other professions. And now where we land now is the Great Reset. And it's a reset of expectations and it's a reset of that contract before between the employer and the employee. And the power pendulum has shifted. So our next book is called The Empathy Advantage, How to Lead in a, Leading an Empowered Workforce. Because the workforce is empowered, even if we have a recession, that it's not going to change the fundamental empowerment. And I think a piece that's really driving it is Gen Z coming into the workforce. There's been a lot of articles written, tweets out there from disabled activists talking about you know what? It was all a myth, wasn't it? Because in two weeks, we shifted from what they said couldn't be done. You can't work from home. You know, you have to come into this physical workspace. And like you said, wow, we were putting up with that. And yet were we? Because the people that made the decision said this is how it needed to be. So how does that actually continue to be a force driving the future of work when the worker is still relatively powerless as individuals? And yet the whole paradigm of work has changed. Yeah, I think one of the reasons we, we see such a push from leadership to get folks back into the office, because the honest answer is, we don't know. So we had two and a half years of remote work. We know it worked for a lot of things. There's this theory, you know, that we don't have as much social capital, social connection. We can't innovate this way. All of those things may or may not be true. We actually haven't studied different facets of that. We have ideas about it. But the reason I think leadership mostly wants to get folks back in the workforce is that's where they were successful. If you're a leader, you became successful in an in-work environment. So what happens if you take away the forum in which you were successful? And then, you know, you trusted your people for two and a half years. So why aren't you trusting them now? I think what needs to begin now is a series of experiments. And looking at kind of the natural history experiments that happened over the last two and a half years. As I was navigating some of the conversations with chief HR officers, what they really reported in kind of group conversations was, you know what, it's not that people are goofing off working at home. They're actually working too much. Their computers never go off. They're getting almost too much done. They haven't found that work-life balance. And as I report out to employer groups about the health of their employees, what I see is you know what, the amount of exercise went down, weight went up, blood pressure went up. And so I think partly the next challenge is even finding out how do we get into a rhythm and a balance again of both mental and physical health as it pertains to the work that we're doing. Yeah. And I think we might see that shift from work life to life work balance. Yeah. That, when you, that's, yeah. you live at work and work and, and work at home. Absolutely. So one of the topics, of course, that has been kind of threaded through everything is really the women who are not in the workplace anymore. During the pandemic, as there were little kids at home and there were two income families, the moms and, and the dads looked at each other and said, you know what, the dad's job pays more, so why don't you quit and homeschool? So even though, as you've pointed out, women were almost at parity before the pandemic as far as their numbers in the workforce. Even though women have 10 million more degrees, they've left in significant numbers. And so what's the role for the future of work for women? Are they going to come back? Are they going to get creative about working at home? How are we going to support parents in this new future of work? Well, I think it's time for us to acknowledge that parenting is a job and it's more than one job. 
So lately, I don't know sure if I did it in the talk I did for you folks, is Welch's grape juice. I found a study that was pre-pandemic. They had Welch's, the grape juice folks, wanted to understand how, how much time does parenting really take up? And so they inventoried these parents, which are primarily moms, and it was equivalent to two and a half jobs before she clocks in for work. So for all the women out there who are working to barely pay for childcare, never see their children be exhausted and constantly burn out after two and a half years of going, you know, I can live without that extra this or that and actually see my children instead of, you know, sort of slaving away just to pay childcare. Now, it's a tremendous economic loss for us, and we've already got labor shortages. So it would be beneficial for us to come up with some sort of supplemented child care so that we get high quality child care because those little kids are our future taxpayers. And that's how we have to think about them. And we have a tremendous loss of human potential. We've got lost Einsteins all over the place. So we need equity in that for even if it's only for your self-interest. Yeah, it really is. And I'm just thinking of questions I've heard about, well, why should I have to pay more for my insurance than families have to pay for theirs? And so a lot of conversations, I'm sure, will come to the surface about who gets what. One of the things that I've seen is a lot of companies really tailoring their benefits for people and what they do pay for, realizing that there are different needs and that it doesn't actually have to be everybody gets the same, which is really the distribution of of things being equal. But really, we need to start thinking about what is equitable, which is how can we actually have everybody thrive in this environment? And maybe some person needs child care, maybe someone else needs elder care, but looking very specifically at people and what their individual needs are in the workplace as well. Yeah, I think that's great to personalize those needs. But I also think as a society, and this is probably my liberal side coming out, we have over-indexed on rights and over-indexed on responsibilities. We talk about what our rights are. We do not talk about what our responsibilities are. Say more about that. So, uh, you know, the people who say to me, and, and I don't have children, but I'm happy, more than happy to pay for the education of other children. Even if I was selfish, they are future taxpayers that are going to drive the economy and my investments. So if I cared about nothing other than myself, an investment in childcare is an investment in future taxpayers. But there are a lot of folks who said, I didn't have children. Why am I paying for education for others? I feel that's our responsibility. Somebody paid for the education that I enjoyed and that the people around me enjoyed. It's just a matter of paying it forward, whether it be education, the environment, income inequality, you know, making uh, adjustments for the sins of our past in terms of racial disparities, because collectively that ends up unleashing more human potential. So it's an investment in all of us. We've got to just kind of reframe the conversation. I constantly say creating future taxpayers because it helps people understand we can all get on the same page about that. I totally agree. And the biologist in me is going back to even when you look at birds and birds who don't have offspring will help raise the offspring of other birds because it makes for a more healthy bird society. And so if this is so part of our genetics and how we survive together, it sure makes sense that that would extend into humans as well. One of the things that we've seen through the pandemic, and it really just seems like it's being worsened right now, is the shrinking of the middle class, that we're seeing that there's a lot of folks with money, and then even more as, as, as we have this widening gap. How are the strategies and tactics that you talk about in your book actually going to help grow that middle class? Are they, or is that actually outside of the scope of what you talk about? It is outside of the scope of what I talk about in that book. It's not outside the scope of the things that I talk about. So one of the things that I think is happening right now when we're talking about these inflation cycles, and let me just qualify by saying I am not an economist. One of the things people are saying is, oh, okay, you know, things cost more, so we've got to pay people more. 
put put a pin in that for a second. If if minimum wage had stayed pace with inflation prior to the recent increases in inflation, it would have been $24 an hour. If it stayed pace with productivity increases that we've had, it would be $26 an hour. It's still stuck at 750. So people who are getting to 15 and $20 an hour and congratulating themselves, and I do congratulate them, they're not there yet. So when we talk about how we're going to get the middle class back, we have to realize we've been underpaying people for decades. And one of the things that may come out of this pandemic is those folks refusing those conditions and us paying more for some stuff because it supports people who we were not properly compensating in the past. Yeah, it, it's really okay if a burrito costs a dollar more. I'll pay that. That's, that's okay with me. Again, I want to live in a world where people are able to take care of themselves because they make a living wage. They have adequate time off in order to do the things that make, make them healthy as well. I love that you also talked about kind of the different groups of folks according to age, racial, ethnicity as well. And you said something about in the 18 and under population right now, there is no racial majority, which is fascinating again, as you think about 10 years from now, they're in the workforce. But I contrast that with who's in leadership still. When you look at who is leading a lot of these companies, there is still clearly a racial majority, and they're not necessarily looking to leave very soon. So how is it that we use that variety, those different perspectives, in order to actually inform the future of work almost from the bottom up? Yeah. Okay. So I wrote the book in 2019. It came out in 2020. We are now sitting here, you know, halfway to 2022. So just putting that in in context. Some interesting things have happened in the pandemic. Coinciding with the pandemic, we had the the horrific murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter protests, which also continue to fuel what was already a pressure for diversity, equity, inclusion, which is now, I think, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. It's DEI and B, I think. If you don't get belonging, you don't get people to stay, you don't get people to engage. An interesting study came out. It was one of the organizations that looks at compositions of boards and how boards run large organizations. And they surveyed individuals who are in the diversity, equity, inclusion area, you know, so executives who are African-American, lesbian, gay, bisexual, Hispanic, whatever, whatever the factor of diversity may be. And they asked them, would you join an organization as a CEO, as a CFO, it's a CEO, at the C-suite, at the higher level, if they did not have a clearly committed and tracking DEI and B strategy? And the answer was 84% of them said no. So where you used to get people to go in as sort of the token this and the token that, they're saying no to those organizations that are not walking the talk. This pressure from the talent side. The other thing that's happening, and it started happening a couple of years ago, is like Fortune 500 partnered with Measure Up. They're asking and telling public companies when you want to be on the Fortune 500 list, we are going to disclose any DEI metrics you have and we're requiring you to have them. What does that mean? Investors are now demanding it. Diverse organizations have beat the S&P 500 for 20 years now. So we know that. So we've done a little better at sounding the alarm on the investor and the talent side. Now it's just a matter of catching up. Now, the third piece of it is, it is my understanding there'll be an exodus of some degree of leadership coming this fall into winter, Q3, Q4, and Q1 of next year, because the leadership that brought us through the pandemic, some of those folks have said, enough. I'm done. So we'll see some sort of turnover. Also seeing boomer Gen X to Gen X and millennial leadership turnovers. So I think it's coming that we'll start seeing more diversity there because of those two pressures from talent and investors, generational turnover, and then burnout turnover. 
Yeah. And, you know, as I've talked to friends, colleagues, and then looking at companies, consultants, et cetera, I have been struck by everybody reporting, oh, we've had such turnover. And sometimes it's a small world from one company to the other kind of thing. But you're right. People are also changing careers, changing the line of business that they've always been in, looking for that difference as they've lived through a pandemic and looking, you know, here's what's left of what I want to do in the world. How do I want to live going forward? You talk about how people become the why for a company and where so many companies have been about kind of the value, the return on investment very task-focused, here's the product in the end, and shifting over to that people and purpose focus. Leadership is needing to look at relationships more. And I'll tell you, when I first came across that and heard about it from you, (laughs) my first impression was, really? Is leadership really going to go from being task-focused, outcome-focused, and being people-focused? Because their purpose is to make money so that they can keep being a business. So talk me through that a little bit more. Okay. So some organization, I can't remember the name of it at the moment, recalculated value created on the S&P 500, 1975 through 2020. In 1975, 83% of the value created came from property plant equipment. We made stuff. 10% came from intangible capital. So in that world, people were the means. People were a cost to contain. And that set our mindset of how we train people in MBA programs, how we think about organizations, how investors make demands. And that was part of the Milton Friedman shareholder value era, the only purpose of a company's return profits to shareholders. When you land on 2020 and you look at the percentages, it's 90% intangible capital. See, what does that mean? 90% of the value being created is directly created to human activities and ingenuity. So it's patents, ideas, et cetera. Now, when you consider the fact that humans are the greatest source of value creation, and you look at the levels of mental health and burnout right now, you realize managing people as a cost to contain isn't working anymore. So we need to shift to greater value out of people. How do you do it? It's not by grinding them into dust. It's not by overworking them. So it's a shift in leadership from, and the one of the ways I talk about it now is, you know, we used to talk about I'm the manager, so everybody reports to me. That makes all the people who report to me competitors, so people compete with each other. Now, if you move to another mindset where you work for the people, your goal is to enable their success, they start seeing their peers as collaborators who make them stronger. It's a big shift for leadership from process where people were just part of it to focusing on the people and unleashing the potential within them. It really is a huge shift. And even our institutions have really been built around competition, right? Only so many people, if you get graded on a curve, or you have to do this well in school in order to get into med school, for instance, and then you've got your specialty. And so there's this ongoing competition kind of reinforced by old systems and patterns and even the patriarchy that's existed in a lot of these that have been perpetuated as well. And so it is a huge mindset shift. Amy Edmonton, you talk about her in your book as well, and in the concept of psychological safety. And I think it relates here, bringing our full authentic selves to work, I think is part of that, but also being able to be in a collaborative environment and not having to be the star all the time. Yeah, let me speak to that for a second. And it connects to the turnover in the workforce. So if you have people and you're pitting them against each other as competitors, and you're relying on different people to have their starring roles, what happens when one of those folks leaves suddenly, which they're doing? Now, if you build teams where people are working together, one person drops out, you don't lose everything because you still have your team working. So there's a resilience in doing teams. 
The other thing is from a leadership perspective, the way we used to pick our leaders was we picked the stars. So we picked the stars to be the unquestioned experts. Now, one of the things I say in almost every uh, group I speak to is, how many of you folks have people reporting to you who have skills and knowledge you don't have? Raise your hands. Anybody who doesn't have their hand up, they say you're a liar. You cannot be an expert on data security, cybersecurity, machine learning, data analytics, et cetera. So we can't pick those unquestioned experts anymore because it's actually a liability. So it's a shift in how we form teams, how we praise people, how we hire people, and especially how we pick and nurture leadership. You said a word, resilience, that quite honestly, I think I've come to hate just because it's just been so overused during the pandemic. And it feels like it's almost the default method of coping in a way. But that leads me to want to talk about the difference between flexibility and adaptation. So your book is the adaptation advantage. It's not resilience. It's not flexibility. What is the difference in adaptation from those other two things? Yeah, we very specifically picked the word adaptation. So resilience is overused, and sometimes it's used incorrectly. It's sometimes it's pursuing the same thing, even though you're burnt out and it isn't working. And that's not what I mean. I mean resilience in terms of the fact that you've built in some redundancies. You've built in some ability for people to take a break, a different kind of resilience. But we purposely didn't use that word, and we didn't use the word flexibility or flux or those kinds of words because we spoke to an organizational psychologist who said the difference between flexibility and adaptability is clear. Flexibility is reaching down to your toolbox to pick a tool you've used before to tackle a process you've seen before. Adaptation requires you to reach down to your toolbox and pick a half-forged tool, tackle a process you've never seen before, and it involves both unlearning and learning, and it requires trust and vulnerability. And adaptation is what we ended up going through in the pandemic. I didn't know that was coming, but it's, to me, a much more meaningful concept than any of the others. Yeah, I agree. I also tagged on to a lot of C words, so we're going to go through those together. Complexity, culture, collective intelligence, and capacity. So let's start with complexity. Yeah, so we used to live in a complicated world, I say, and that's when things could break down into subcomponents. And a complex world is when things are sort of more interlocking. So if you look at an org chart, you had somebody at the top, they could be the unquestioned expert. Now you've got you know skills and knowledge emerging all the time, so you need to think differently. So individual intelligence worked in a complicated world. Collective intelligence is necessary in a complex world. And I would also talk about complicated and complexity in medicine, where complicated is, you know, having to do a really complicated surgery. But complexity is you don't even know what you're doing when you open that abdomen. What are you going to encounter and how are you going to be able to? There is no answer in a complex environment. And I love your definition of capacity, the ability to meet the moment. How is it that we actually grow that capacity, the ability to meet the moment? How do we grow that in ourselves going forward in the future of work? That's where we step back from, from using the word capacity to be do more, do everything. That doesn't work because you diminish your ability to respond when you've been overextended. So capacity is saying, you know, what's my intellectual capacity, my curiosity capacity, my wellness capacity? Am I putting myself in the conditions to best meet this moment? And that's when we think about humans and managing humans in the workforce, when they are the most important asset, which they clearly are, we're going to be saying suddenly, how well educated is our workforce? How much time off do they have? Do they have enough rest and recreation? It's not going to be about grinding them into a stump, which is the other version of capacity. It's going to be more about how do we keep that capacity fresh? My mind is segueing to 
an article I saw where the writer said, you know, I, I emailed my boss and said something about, I'm, I'm sorry, I just can't give 100% today. I'm a little bit out of it. And her boss responded with what you think work is, which is, and it was basically circles that were filled in 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. And she said, but what work really is? And she showed 150, 70, 70, 30, and was really showing that she got it, that people don't show up every day at 100% of all of their capacity, that it's actually a fluid thing, maybe day by day, maybe season by season in our lives as we go through the different times in our lives as well. But I loved that your definition really did feel like it was fluid and responsive to the challenge in front. And also acknowledges that sometimes if you're running on low capacity all the time, we tend to think of burnout as an individual problem that can be solved with a yoga class or a meditation app when it's an organizational problem. So sometimes when you see that people's diminishing effectiveness, particularly rise in cynicism, is a a red flag that you've got something in the organization that needs to change because the individual cannot respond to their capacity. Yeah, Dr. Christina Maslach, who I think actually just had an article in Scientific American about that very thing. And I interviewed her previously for this podcast about the concept of burnout, which she was just so amazing at defining it as an organizational, not an individual problem. Another example, I was witnessing a conversation in a large group in a company, and they talked about people who are retired in place and the cynics, and maybe it was time for them to go. And a very brave soul raised his hand and said, you know, we didn't hire cynics. And really acknowledging, (laughs) yeah, there was an unsaid, you know, part two to that, but really acknowledging that cynicism, again, is more of a reflection of the system that people are in rather than the people themselves. Which brings us to your next book. Can we talk about the empathy advantage and why you thought it was important to write this and uh, just give us a quick preview? Sure. Not only do I think it was important to write it, I think it's important to get it out as soon as possible. So I'm taking August off the road, which is very rare for me. We're trying to get the manuscript done by September. It might be a little bit later than that. It seems like there's a guidebook that's needed right now. Well, the adaptation advantage, I think, was helpful in the pandemic. Coming out of the pandemic, I haven't seen anybody come forward with a guidebook that I think we need. I think people are stuck on concepts in their singular and not seeing them in their collective. So people are saying, Great resignation. Well, when are people going to get back to work? And can we just pay them more money? And, you know, great reshuffle. Okay, well, where's the where's the workforce? And how's it coming back? And where are we going to get these people? They're not seeing the magnitude of this shift. I think it's the first time in a generation or two where we've had the opportunity to really redefine work to make it better for more humans. And it means we have to cultivate a different form of leadership, a different type of leadership. We don't have that going on. There are little echoes of it in places, but we don't have a guidebook to say, this is what's been happening. Now, the pandemic just brought it all to head, but there are long trends in there, short trends in there, and Gen Z's coming online. And people have written books about Gen Z before, and they're like, well, it's not that interesting. Well, they're going to be 30% of the workforce before we know it. It's time to understand them. And I'll just quickly explain. Gen Z was born in 9-11. They've never known a time without terrorism. There are digital natives. They're our most well-educated population that we've ever had before as a generation, most diverse. They saw the global financial crisis when they were grade school. So they saw their parents lose their houses, their cars, their jobs. Then they saw school shootings come online as a form of constant threat. Then the UN climate report came out saying they had 12 years to save the planet. 
Many of them took that to heart and say they're never going to have children because they don't think the planet's going to be there. And then they saw, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement. They've never known a time without war. And now they're finishing high school, university, entering the workforce in a pandemic. They've been in constant trauma and stress and been acutely aware of the things that every other generation has kicked down the road, particularly the climate, particularly social justice and income inequality issues. And they are not going to stand for it. And they would rather not work than work under conditions the rest of us have accepted. So I think while all these things are coming ahead and then Gen Z's coming online, they're going to make these conditions much more permanent and really reshape work and I think make for a better society for all of us. So I'm very optimistic about them. I was just going to say your optimism is showing again, Heather. <laughs> that is awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I don't have any more questions on my list, but I always like to ask, is there a question that you wish I would have asked? No, you had great questions. <laughs> it was a great <laughs> conversation. And, uh, and you're obviously so well-versed at this and do such a nice job. And I'm just really struck by your own ability as a futurist, really, to see the impact and understand the impact. I think the hardest thing of all is to really be able to project into the future what we're experiencing now and to almost project yourself and look back, which is, I, I think, what you're so skilled at doing. And then just really, I think, lighting the way for the rest of us. So I thank you so much for the work that you've done the fact that you have been getting it out there, that you wrote this amazing book and are speaking about it. And now I'm so excited about your next book, anticipating again what's needed, writing that guidebook. I think that's such a great description of what's needed. So finding the need and filling it as, as you teach us to do that, you're also showing the way yourself. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you to all the companies that asked me to speak, because that's where I get the message out. It's also where I learn. That's where I have the conversations where I meet people like yourself. I mean, I spoke a couple of times for Kaiser and I, I met you on one of those and that was a privilege from which I've, I learned so much. So thank you to the companies and the agents and bureaus that support me because without that, I really wouldn't be able to do this. Awesome, Heather, thank you so much. Okay, excellent, thank you very much. Thanks to my guests for joining me today. And thank you for listening to the Health Fuse podcast with Deb Friesen, MD. I hope you'll share this episode with colleagues, friends and family members who are interested in diving deeper into meaningful and relevant health and wellness topics. I look forward to the next conversation and will share another episode of Health Views with you soon. Take good care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The discussion reflects the opinions of the speakers and is not intended to represent Kaiser Permanente policy. It does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content is not intended to be a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information is at the listener's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their medical professionals. Music